You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. In the early 1980s, thousands of Central Americans came to the Bay Area. Jose Artiga is one of them. Jose fled El Salvador because soldiers came to his house to kill him. He barely got away. By March of 1982, he was staying at a church in Berkeley with other refugees. We were afraid because we could be picked up, you know, right there leaving the church. Uh, and being deported, and deported in my case would be, um, I would be, I would be killed because the order has been already issued to kill me. So we decided to do it. You know, I mean, I, it was this was not just me. We were hundreds of us. When Jose says we decided to do it, he's talking about a decision to go public. Up until this point. Churches that were sheltering Central American refugees were keeping it on the down low because they were breaking the law. And as Jose said, admitting that you were here illegally could be a death sentence if you were deported. But on March 24th, 1982, seven congregations, including the church in Berkeley where Jose was staying, the University Lutheran Chapel, decided to take a risk. They announced to the world, we are a sanctuary. Here's what happened next. It spread to all over the country, churches, universities, cities. Getting 500 religious organizations on board wasn't easy. But throughout the 1980s, the movement spread from churches, synagogues, and temples to cities and states. Eventually, Hundreds of jurisdictions would pass sanctuary laws. And right now, in 2017, these laws are at the center of a massive legal battle. President Trump has vowed to eliminate sanctuary cities by withholding federal funding, but many cities are fighting back. Because of this controversy, a lot of media are talking about the history of sanctuary cities. These laws can be complicated, so explaining how they developed is useful. But here's the thing. I've been checking out a ton of this coverage about the origins of the sanctuary movement lately, and everyone, from the BBC to local TV news stations, are missing a very important chapter of this story. The first chapter. Because the modern sanctuary movement didn't start in the 1980s to support Central American refugees. It started a decade earlier. And I don't know why, but I haven't seen a single article in recent years mention this fact. Berkeley announced itself as America's first sanctuary city on November 8th, 1971. Here's Professor Jen Ridgely, one of the few academics who have studied this history, on the significance of this moment. When the city of Berkeley passes its sanctuary resolution, basically calling on the city to provide support to soldiers who don't want to fight in Vietnam, 
and calls on the city to provide material supports, right? Housing, blankets, food, legal support, and very clearly says that city police and city officials and city resources will not be used to um, arrest men who are refusing to fight, arrest the soldiers who are refusing to fight. That was a moment where sanctuary as an idea and as a concept shifted from the space of the church to the space of the city. Did you hear that last thing that Jen said about sanctuary shifting from the church to the city? Here's what she's talking about. The day before Berkeley declared itself a sanctuary, a local church passed its own sanctuary resolution, the first of its kind. Want to guess which church it was? If you said the University Lutheran Chapel, booyah, give yourself a pat on the back. That's right, the church that helped launch the 1980s sanctuary movement when Jose Artigo was living there, that's the same church that started it all. And this guy, Bennett Falk, was there. We as a congregation wound up drafting um, drafting a resolution about sanctuary. The resolution that this congregation adopted was adopted on November 7th of 1971. It was adopted in this room that we're in. Um, and I, rem- I was at that meeting. And it was, it was, it was a thing. You know, you, you knew you were doing something. Um, it was, yeah, anyway, it was, it was quite, a, quite an impressive evening. They knew they were doing something, but they had no idea what that something would grow into. The amazing, amazing thing to me is that this movement gets reinvigorated in, you know, in the early 80s with Salvadoran refugees, refugees from Central America, um, in the late 80s, again, with, with refugees from various places, in the first Gulf War, you know, and, you know, and now we're... You know, the, so the amazing thing is that now there are sanctuary cities. The big question, of course, is will there still be sanctuary cities in a year or two? But that's not what this episode is about. Today, we're going to explore the origins of this movement. Yeah, sanctuary laws are important because people who are sick should be able to go to the hospital without fear of being deported, for example. But sanctuary is about much more than legal policies. It's a philosophy, and it's relationships, and it's spaces where people come together. It's a challenge, it's a protest, it's resistance. According to a lot of people I've interviewed, it's love. And it's also many, many people standing up, sometimes putting their lives on the line for what they believe in, no matter what the law says. So... Stay tuned. I'm Liam O'Donoghue, and you're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This came out of prayer, resulted from their, their study of scripture, so one very important part of it was that from Leviticus, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, treat that stranger as you would the native among you, because we are all strangers and foreigners. That's the voice of Sister Maureen. 
She's pretty much devoted her life to the sanctuary movement since the early 80s, when she first started working with Central American refugees. My name is Sister Maureen Dignan. I'm the director of East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. A minute ago, she mentioned that the Bible promotes sanctuary. Basically, it says that you should treat strangers in your land the same as those born among you, and don't harass them. I'm not saying that we should take everything the Bible says literally, but the point is that the roots of this go all the way back to Old Testament times. What sanctuary means has evolved since then, but the idea of holy places as safe zones for fugitives and other people being persecuted has been around for thousands of years. You can find mentions of it in ancient Greece and other BC civilizations. There were sanctuary codes and customs in Europe from the time of the Roman Empire until religious law started taking a back seat to more secular government during the Age of Enlightenment. On the day that I started writing this episode, February 19th, there's a headline on the cover of the East Bay Times that says, quote, Sacred Sanctuary. Dozens of Bay Area churches have declared themselves havens. Before the Civil War, abolitionists with the Underground Railroad used the word sanctuary to describe what they were doing. But until the Vietnam era, sanctuary didn't have any kind of legal meaning in the U.S. One of the guys who would help sanctuary transform from a concept to a law was a pastor at the University Lutheran Chapel named Gus Schultz. Here's Bennett Falk again. He was a seminary student and one of the members of Gus's small congregation at the time. In the spring of 1971, a number of events happened. Uh, This was a focus of um, draft resistance. There was a Berkeley draft board, and the pastor at the chapel at the time was Gus Schultz. And he had a number of people in the congregation that were eager to make a statement about the draft. They went down and picketed the Berkeley Draft Board. They were arrested. They had the opportunity to go to Santa Rita, the county jail, and stayed there for five days. I mean, they, they were given a choice of being released, paying a fine, or going, doing five days in jail. Well, they did five days in jail. Before coming to Berkeley, Pastor Schultz had been part of the civil rights movement in the South. So he was already a seasoned activist, and when he got to the East Bay and landed with a congregation of mostly students, it was a good fit. There was another guy who was a, a, an attendee here who, in April of, of 1971, burned his draft card out in the parking lot. Well, the FBI was watching him from across the street, and they let him go ahead and go to church. He did it before, before the church service on a Sunday morning. And then after church, they arrested him out front. By the early 70s, Anti-war protests had already been raging for years, and these actions were having an impact. As the Vietnam War became more and more unpopular, the U.S. military started changing its strategy. So this backdrop of discontent is the situation when an aircraft carrier called the USS Coral Sea is pulling into the Alameda Naval Air Station. The plan was to post up there for a few months of repairs and resupplying before heading back to the war. Here's Professor Jen Ridgely again. In the time leading up to the USS Coral Sea, 
docking at Alameda um, in 1971, there had been a kind of decline in the number of ground troops who were stationed in Vietnam. Part of it was because of growing resistance to the war and the huge number of casualties, also increased mutiny among soldiers, but the air war was escalating. So the Navy's fleet of aircraft carriers and all of the soldiers that served on them were playing a larger role. Here's how the nature of resistance among guys working on boats was different from the guys fighting in the jungle. The sailors who were going away were very unlikely to get fired on because, you know, in the Vietnam War, there really weren't the resources to attack an aircraft carrier. In some sense, the aircraft carrier was uh, sort of the great, 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 great grandfather of the drone war that we've got going on now, um, you know, where sailors could go and they would have this this space where they were relatively safe from the, the fear of being killed in combat. And yet, they were participating in killing people they couldn't see. The guys on these carriers had seen the pictures of little kids scalded by napalm. And even though the sailors weren't the ones pulling the trigger, a lot of them felt that the blood was still on their hands. But here's the thing. Organizing resistance was really hard. A group of sailors on the Coral Sea were trying to start a campaign called SOS for Stop Our Ship, but they were facing really harsh repression. Some of them were getting thrown in the brig or transferred to onshore military prisons or even being beaten up for passing around a protest petition. The commanding officers were doing everything they could to keep anti-war sailors isolated from each other. For sailors who were interested in conscientious objection, It was hard to get information or find helpful contacts. Even asking around could be dangerous. So the SOS thing is just getting started when a guy named Bob Fitch came to talk to Pastor Schultz about Sanctuary. Bob Fitch was a pretty famous photojournalist and an anti-war activist. He'd just gotten back to the Bay from San Diego where he'd been coordinating between a local church and sailors on the USS Constellation who didn't want to go back to Vietnam. In that effort, nine sailors sought sanctuary in the church. And even though they were arrested, they were eventually released from the military with honorable discharges. The idea of sanctuary had also started bubbling up in places like Boston, but nobody had formalized the idea into a campaign yet. Then, Bob Fitch and Gus Schultz team up, and boom, these guys are like the anti-war dream team. Bob is like, I think there's something to the sanctuary idea. Gus is like, brother, I got this. On the church side, we did in fact have a a conservative audience, you know, that we were a part of a conservative denomination. And if we were going to make that argument, we had to make it in terms that those folks would understand. And Gus was extremely good at that. You know, he knew the, he knew the biblical support for, for sanctuary. So Gus and Bob come up with a presentation about sanctuary, along with a guidebook, and start shopping it around to some local churches. Pretty soon, 17 congregations were on board, including a few others near the Cal campus and some churches in Oakland, Hayward, and San Francisco. The basic idea is a highly coordinated, 
public campaign to reach out to sailors on the Coral Sea and say, hey, if you need a place to stay for a while, while you think about whether or not you're going back to the war, we got your back. Food, shelter, support, community, come to us and we'll give you sanctuary. Away from the commanding officers who are like, maybe beating your ass or threatening to lock you up or whatever. Bob Fitch and Pastor Schultz were both veterans of the civil rights movement, so they knew that public perception is crucial. Up until this point, President Nixon was trying to demonize the anti-war movement as a bunch of un-American, dirty hippies and black power radicals. This wasn't true. Lots of people from all parts of society were against the war, but you get what I'm saying. Optics and all that. Anyway, Churches had been part of the anti-war movement since the beginning, but Bob and Gus knew that sanctuary could grab the spotlight. You know, the involvement of the churches was really significant, especially because so much of the resistance on board the aircraft carriers was about conscientious objection. And there was a kind of moral authority that the churches and the faith-based organizing around sanctuary offered to the GI movement. Framing resistance to the war in biblical terms not only helped further legitimize the movement, but physically sheltering conscientious objectors was also a strategy designed to create some very unflattering interactions. There was a certain mystique about churches, and I think all of the, all of the law enforcement agencies that were going to be responsible for finding AWOL servicemen were a little nervous about coming onto church grounds and, and apprehending somebody. Okay. So that all makes sense. But Bennett is quick to point out this wasn't a publicity stunt. It was really important for us to sort it out and to, and to say, you know, this isn't just a symbolic action. Um, we're doing something real here. We're doing something that's going to have consequences for us, consequences for the people that take sanctuary. And, and we need to be, you know, very upfront about that. We need to, we need to know what we're doing. And we, we're not doing this to put off the consequences. We will accept the consequences of what we do. Besides the members of the military, who would be facing arrest for going AWOL, the congregations offering sanctuary were putting themselves on the line, too. Not only were they worried about losing funding and their preferential tax status, but Pastor Schultz was pretty sure the FBI was tapping their phones, too. And especially because they were working behind the scenes to get the city of Berkeley on board, which made the stakes even higher... Yeah, there were some pretty big risks involved. On November 7th, 1971, the Congregation of the Universal Lutheran Chapel voted in favor of a sanctuary resolution. The very next day, under the leadership of Warren Widener, Berkeley's first African-American mayor, the city passed the first sanctuary resolution in the history of the United States. Here's the part that's important to remember, quote, no Berkeley city employee will violate the established sanctuaries by assisting in investigation or arrests for violation of federal laws relating to military service. 
it was Berkeley's resolution, particularly the part of the resolution that restricted um, municipal participation in, you know, policing resistant soldiers that became the model for sanctuary policies passed in the 1980s by cities in order to protect refugees from Central America. Before we get to the second wave of the sanctuary movement, here's what happened with the rest of the first. The newspaper headline, the morning after the resolution passed, read, quote, Berkeley is a sanctuary. So that's pretty cool. But more importantly, hundreds of servicemen reached out to churches that were part of the sanctuary movement. Less than a dozen ended up actually sheltering in the churches, mostly because they knew they'd be arrested, which is what did eventually happen. But the impact was much bigger than these individual cases. The campaign succeeded in highlighting the broad support for the anti-war movement. One of the churches that did end up providing sanctuary to the sailors wasn't a college campus congregation, but the Montclair Presbyterian Church up in the Oakland Hills. Montclair Presbyterian was was a real middle class church. You know, it was it was it was really something. And and the idea that they would stick their necks out and offer sanctuary and and do that, you know, it was it was really kind of uh, a thing for us. It was it was, you know, I thought, okay, you know, this is this is mainstream. This is this isn't as as radical as it, you might be tempted to think at first glance. Another impact is that all the organizing and communication that was happening between the anti-war sailors and civilian activists in the planning of the sanctuary campaign really helped boost the SOS movement. After the Coral Sea shipped out from Alameda, it docked in Hawaii on the way to Vietnam. During this break, sailors from the Coral Sea networked with crew members from other carriers that were bound for Southeast Asian waters. In modern lingo, this is when SOS really went viral. We see that after the ship eventually sets sail, um, there's a period of time where the SOS movement expands to other aircraft carriers. And, you know, sailors start talking about it a lot more. And some of this kind of very, very challenging forms of resistance on board the ships start to spread. Fortunately, blowback to the city of Berkeley and the sanctuary congregations was minimal. A U.S. attorney threatened to prosecute members of the Berkeley City Council for encouraging desertion, but it never happened. Decades later, Pastor Schultz was asked why the feds didn't crack down harder on the sanctuary movement. I think his answer holds a really important lesson for people defending sanctuary today. He said that there was so much support for the movement in the Bay Area, the government knew that picking that fight would be a losing battle. On June 27 of 1980, the death squad came to my town with you know, five names. We were the only five university students, and they did find the other four and uh, killed them. That's the voice of Jose Artiga, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. When I asked Jose how he avoided the death squads, he explained that the four other men on the list who were killed were students at the National University, and they were home for the weekend. 
Jose wasn't in his village when the assassins came because he was a student at the Catholic University and he had a test that weekend. So I decided to stay at the university to avoid checkpoints and that's what uh, saved me. So I decided to leave the very same day. So I learned that early in the morning and by 5 p.m. I was crossing the border into, into Guatemala. Guatemala was at war, so I keep on moving to Mexico and then from Mexico to, to the U.S. So you might be wondering, why was there a death squad after Jose? The civil wars in Central America during the 1980s have a lot of history behind them. But for the purposes of this podcast, here's the simplest explanation I can come up with. And I'm just going to talk about El Salvador, not Guatemala. Again, for the sake of simplicity. Okay, so in El Salvador, a tiny portion of the population controlled the vast majority of wealth, while most people were poor peasant farm workers. The military government pretty much said anybody who wanted reforms that would make the country more equitable was a communist, even though this was a huge exaggeration. Eventually, the extremely brutal repression leads to a civil war between leftist guerrilla groups and the government, which was being propped up by the United States. Here's Jose explaining the strategy behind this support. Perhaps the U.S. government had learned about Vietnam uh, not to send troops. So in the case of Central America, they send advisors, they send money, they, but they didn't send troops. They were kind of still processing the big uh, defeat that they had in, in Vietnam. Remember, the U.S. is only a few years out of Vietnam at this point, and nobody wants to do that again. So instead of invading, the U.S. spent millions and millions of dollars on weapons and supplies for the Salvadoran military, and they also trained elite personnel, including some guys involved with death squads, like the one that was after Jose. But why Jose? Here's why. A lot of people were caught in the middle during the Civil War, including folks connected to the Catholic Church. Remember how I said that anybody who wanted political reform was an enemy of the government? Well, The head of the Catholic Church in El Salvador was named Archbishop Oscar Romero, and he was not a leftist radical. He was just disgusted by the government's brutality, and he said so. This made him an enemy, and it's why one of the most famous Death Squad flyers read, quote, Be a patriot. Kill a priest. The American public was being told that there was a civil war in El Salvador and that it was regrettable, but sort of under control. And I don't think anyone in the official world um, really acknowledged how out of control things were in El Salvador with, with death squads. I think it was the violence against church people in El Salvador that pulled back the curtain on just how um, terrifying that situation was. I mean, you know, just the blatant thing, the idea that Archbishop Romero was assassinated while he was celebrating the Mass is is just a frightening thing. Because there were no U.S. troops in El Salvador, it was easier for our government to control the message of what was happening down there and to keep it out of the headlines. That's why when people like Jose arrived in America, the government could just say, sorry, you're not a refugee, and ship them back. 
they rejected about 99% of our applications. So it was very political. The U.S. didn't want to accept refugees from a country that they were, you know, helping to drop the bombs. That thing Jose just said is really important. The reason why all these Central Americans started flooding into the U.S. was because they were fleeing a human rights crisis that was being bankrolled by the U.S. So, if the Reagan administration admitted there was a real crisis, and what was behind it? Well, that wouldn't be very good for business. Instead, they tried to cover it up. And one of the ways that they did that was by going after undocumented refugees and throwing them in jail. This is where Sister Maureen comes in. She'd spent some time in Honduras in the 70s, working at a school for kids with special needs, and she'd been hearing about some nasty stuff from her friends in Central America. Then, in the early 80s, while she was a student at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, she decided to track down some refugees to find out what was going on. So how did I meet them? I was visiting the detention center in Oakland, Oakland Jail, actually. Oakland Jail had been housing immigrants and refugees, undocumented people, basically, from uh, who undocumented people who really were refugees from their countries, but not recognized as such. So I organized a little group in Oakland, and we would go down there every, every Saturday and visit. These weekend visits weren't just friendly little drop-ins to say hi and pop a few bucks into people's commissaries. It was a race against the system. Remember how the U.S. government was trying to rush these deportations? Sister Maureen and her colleagues used the prison interviews to collect people's stories and official requests for political asylum. Then they had to get these documents typed up, translated, and into the hands of lawyers representing the refugees in deportation proceedings by Monday morning. Look, I know this is an intense story, so before we take a little break, I'm just going to drop this right here. Did that work, the work that you were doing, help prevent some of these people from being deported? Oh, definitely. Some of them are here now. I know some of them very well. They're my good friends, actually. stories that people like Sister Maureen were hearing from refugees sitting in American jails were really bad. I'm not going to get into all the gruesome details, but here are some facts that have been verified by investigations. The Salvadoran military was massacring villages that they suspected of harboring or even sympathizing with leftist guerrillas. In a town called El Mazote, more than 800 civilians were murdered. Soldiers raped little girls and slit babies' throats. This wasn't a battle. It was a slaughter. President Reagan's administration denied everything. The official line was that things were sort of under control, that there were some renegade officers somewhere, but they could be disciplined and stuff like that. And, and gradually, I think it came out that this was more not renegade officers, but this was standard operating procedure to terrorize um, you know, people in, in rural communities, to terrorize church people. It was kind of an interesting thing to see how the, the news was being manipulated. Once we had the, the intuition that things were going wrong, 
We went to look for ourselves. People went and they were shocked at what they saw. And deportation back to El Salvador was understood to be a very bad thing, you know, that, that people were being deported back to their death. Bennett Falk was one of the many Americans who traveled to Honduras in the 1980s to help people fleeing from El Salvador. Sister Maureen also went down. Here she is describing an average day during her time at the Mesa Grande refugee camp. Get up in the morning at leave at six o'clock about and go up the mountains. This took hours to get there, uphill and down the hill, and we're not used to that, so I wasn't used to it anyway. But it was fine. We arrived there. The refugees would be there at the border waiting. And we had these lorries, trucks, these trucks that would have been condemned the first day they would be they would be on a, on a road here in the United States or any other place in Europe, you know. Our first track, well, one of the things that we had, the Les Médecins Sans Frontières, the Doctors Without Borders, they were there and they put some type of pills and medicine into the water because the people arrived and they were just so thirsty and hungry. They hadn't eaten for days. So they got into the trucks. We headed off for Mesa Grande, and there were 40 in the, the uh, truck, and there were four soldiers behind us. And um, they, had their, they had guns. That was scary for me. So we had an eight-hour trip from the border to Mesa Grande, which is the big refugee camp with about 12,000 people. There was no protection at all. This is a, these are mountains. You're going over the mountains, really. And there was no protection on either side. That was the scariest thing for me, because later on we learned that the driver was drunk. <laughs> yeah, he little inebriated. So it would be swerving from side to side. So we arrived, and when we arrived, it was like a huge celebration. You had family members out there waiting to welcome their the refugees and their brothers and sisters or parents and and uh, oh, it was just amazing. We went right back again to the border to do it the next day and the next day and the next day. Sister Maureen told me that she saw barefoot women carrying babies through the jungle and the U.S. government was saying these people aren't really refugees. Despite all the evidence supporting Central Americans' requests for political asylum, the Reagan administration refused to change its policies. By 1982, people were desperate. Refugees and their allies knew they needed to do something big to expose this crisis to the American public. We decided to do it because we thought that we had a chance to at least tell the story, tell the side of our story, because when the media was covering that suburb, it was completely wrong. What they decided to do was revive the sanctuary movement. And again, Pastor Gus Schultz was a driving force of this campaign from the beginning. Gus Schultz and Eileen Purcell approached us and invited us to be at the the launching of uh, the sanctuary on March 24th of 1982, which was coordinated with the church 
in Arizona and another one in Chicago and five churches in the Bay Area. And that was the announcement at University Lutheran Chapel of the sanctuary. The plan was for these seven congregations to all make a public declaration of sanctuary on the same day, the two-year anniversary of Archbishop Romero's assassination. Bennett Falk was there this time, too. Somewhere at home, I've got this great picture, I think, of Jose up on, on what used to be the front of the church. We had a little, a little Eve thing that stuck out. They kind of got up there and they put up this big sign you know, announcing that there were Salvadoran refugees here. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was great. And they were, I mean, at the time, they were living here, you know, and they, they lived here for a while. Again, there were big risks involved. Jose and the other refugees who went public were exposing themselves to deportation, which very well could have meant execution. And the churches could have lost their funding, tax status, or worse. I'll explain what worse means in a minute, but the point is, everybody involved thought it was worth it. People were concerned, but they said, this is, this is one of the most important things we probably ever will do in our lives. They didn't do it just, you know, without thinking. They made this commitment as something that was really deep in their hearts. Once you heard one of their stories, you are going to look, we, we look at ourselves and say, how fortunate we are. Why them? Why do they have to go through all of this? Bay Area was a big hub of this renewed sanctuary movement, but a lot of the action was closer to the border. Sanctuary congregations in Arizona and Texas weren't just sheltering people, they were picking them up from the desert too. Then the U.S. government cracked down. I'll let Jen summarize Operation Sojourner. There had been this moment where, you know, in the 1980s when a whole bunch of um, sanctuary workers and church folk and people involved with the Central American Sanctuary Movement were uh, indicted on felony charges related to their activity. There had been this huge surveillance kind of operation of the sanctuary movement. And, you know, the movement was reeling from these arrests and from the, you know, the knowledge that you know, informants had literally been, like, attending their congregations and their church meetings. As it turned out, arresting a bunch of priests and nuns and threatening to incarcerate some of them for decades backfired on the feds. Instead of scaring people away, the repression made the movement bigger than ever. And then this happened. They held a gathering in Tucson, churches and synagogues and faith-based organizations and um, people who were involved in the Central American Sanctuary Movement sent people from all across the country to attend this gathering. And Gus Schultz brought Berkeley's resolution with him and, you know, talked about it at that gathering. And people took the language, particularly that, you know, fifth point in the resolution around... Uh, you know, the city participating in enforcement um, back to their cities and adapted it to city sanctuary policies that um, would provide, you know, ideally provide some kind of support and protection for Central American refugees. 
The fifth point of the Berkeley resolution was the one about forbidding city employees from helping assist in the arrest of people seeking sanctuary. Pastor Schultz was like, hey, we could use this for refugees too. People were like, amen. And pretty soon, sanctuary cities started popping up all over the country. We continue educating people and then uh, spread to all over the country, churches, universities, cities. During the years of organizing that it took to win these victories, it was the refugees themselves, like Jose, who were really driving the movement. They had the most to lose. There were a number of spaces that refugees would not touch. Like the hospital was one of those, you know, you were afraid of going to the hospital because you didn't have papers and they could arrest you right there. Or the school, you know, you might not want to go to school because uh, somebody can tell on you. And here's why it wasn't just the sanctuary policies themselves, but the whole experience of pushing those laws that was so important. So when, when the city, like, you know, the city of, of Berkeley, the city of San Francisco, and, and many others passed those resolutions, that was um, a layer of support where, you know, uh, you uh, see this, this, was, this was a process, you know, like the date of the resolution is just one date. But let's say a year or two before, there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of education. Like I said at the top, sanctuary isn't just laws, it's relationships. It's a movement. And just so you know, Oakland was ahead of the curve too. Sanctuary city since 86. this is a long episode, but there's one other thing that's been bugging me. When I went to interview Sister Maureen at East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, which is located in the basement of a church, it was early on a Monday morning, and the place was packed. This is the same office that federal agents are suspected of breaking into, by the way, during the Operation Sojourner era. Anyway, we shuffled into her tiny shared office, And when she was talking about listening to refugee stories, she said this. Why them? Why do they have to go through all of this? Why them? I think this is a question we should take seriously. Why is it legal for our government to send someone back to El Salvador or Guatemala or Syria or Yemen just because they happen to be born on the wrong side of a wall that doesn't literally exist? I asked Jen, and she's a lot smarter than me on this, so I'll let her have the last word. The country that we hold citizenship in determines a lot about, you know, the rights that we have access to, um, the resources we have access to, and discrimination based on citizenship status is accepted in law and policy in a way that other kind of axes of difference are not, right? And and what I mean is kind of a formally, legally sanctioned forms of discrimination. And so there's this, I guess, very unjust situation where, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a crapshoot 
where we end up holding our citizenship for the most part. And that ends up structuring a whole bunch uh, of things that shape our life chances. So citizenship, formal citizenship status has become a a form of exclusion. As much as it can be a kind of symbol of inclusion and belonging, it is a a formalized exclusion, a, 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 a system of formalized exclusion. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Big thanks to everyone who was interviewed in this episode, and also Hunter Jackson, Eileen Purcell, Sarah Berg, Ian Boll, Matt Eisenbrandt, Micah Utrecht, and all the good folks at East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. As always, props to everybody who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland History Facebook group, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. You can follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links to all those pages at eastbayyesterday.com. Thank you so much to everybody who's been sharing this show on social media and leaving reviews on iTunes. Please, 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 if you like this show, spread the word. I truly appreciate it. Music for this episode was provided by Anatech, Tab, Revolution Void, and El Remolon. The theme song came from Anatech. I'll be participating in a live local history event on March 8th with the folks from the Outside Lands podcast. You can find the details at shapingsf.org. Shaping SF does tons of great stuff, so check them out. Big shout out to Lisa Ruth and Chris. And one last thing. I know things are looking bleak these days, but don't give up. When we are doing these impossible missions, we need to go back in history, 100 years, you know, 50 years, 20 years back, and see if an impossible, quote, impossible mission uh, was successful, you know, like the civil rights movement or, you know, um, the end in the war in Vietnam or, you know, the, the, the victories that we have secured that in the beginning, it looked like you are not going to make it because the other side is much powerful. Like we can say, there's no way we can do it because you have the executive, the Congress, the Senate and, um, you know, Supreme Court. So there's no way, you know, we should do nothing. I think that we shouldn't think that way. We should say, you know, um, in history, we have overcome a very, very impossible task.